Well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Springfield. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we have people who will give you Bibles. Nice. I um, just want to let you know I love it when Chris is genuine, lets his emotions um, be shown to see what God has done in his life. But I want you to know he does that every service where we are. Um, and yet, I do want to let you know this, it's genuine every time. And he's truly uh, a guy that um, has never forgotten what the Lord has done in his life. And I think sometimes we do. And if we were to really think back at the time when God spoke to us, got a hold of us, um, it would bring tears to your eyes as well, because it's the goodness and the grace of God. And uh, so I'm blessed by him, blessed to have him as our worship leader, adults pastor, um, and uh, God's doing great things through him and more to come. So let's go to uh, John chapter 6. Oh, by the way, my name is uh, David Love. Yeah. Uh, Pastor at Calvary Chapel, Castle Rock, um, married 27 years to my lovely bride, Mindy. Yes. And uh, we have four beautiful kids, um, all boys, except for three girls. And you can do the math. And so we have two grandkids also. Uh, and the unique thing about them is that um, they're born on the same day and they're two years apart. Isn't that wild? So my first one was born, uh, my first one, <laughs> my daughter's uh, son was born uh, five weeks premature, and then two years later, her second child was born six weeks premature on the same day, So, which is great for us because we only have to remember one birthday, June 22nd, we're good, we'll get both of them. So let's go to John chapter 6. We are having, we're going to go over here, the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, all four Gospels actually have this event, which is unique because um, uh, not all Gospels carry the same events. Um, but uh, this event, all four Gospels carry this event of the feeding of the 5,000. But John gives us a little bit more detail, so we're going to read that account here, um, starting in verse 1. And as we go through this story, we're going to notice uh, different uh, people um, in this story. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see the multitudes. We're going to see his disciples, Philip and Andrew. We're going to see uh, a small lad who is nameless. And then we're going to see the loaves and the fish that uh, Jesus uh, multiplies. And so here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And so... Jesus is here in Galilee. If you've ever been to Israel, we go to Israel quite often. We'll be going again in 2019. And my favorite area um, is probably Jerusalem itself because of all the history. But the, the, um, around the Sea of Galilee, that northern part uh, is very lush. It's very green. Um, this is where Jesus did the majority of his ministry and miracles. And so it's a real blessed place. And so it is here around the Sea of Galilee that he does this. And we read here that uh, we see the motivation of this great multitude that is following Jesus. It's because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And so they were curious about him and they came 
probably not necessarily for the right reasons, um, but sometimes, quite often, people come to church not necessarily for the right reasons. But Jesus is still going to meet you there. And so they're here as more to see entertainment, the miracles he's doing, the healings drew many after him, but very, very few to him. And so this is important to be able to see that no matter what the reason is that people are coming to see Jesus, he's still going to minister to their needs. So we see here in verse 4, now the Passover feast of the Jews was near. Passover is actually nearer than they thought, and and because Jesus is the Passover lamb. But being that the Passover were near tells us what time of year this is. It's in the spring. It's in the spring. And so verse 5, Then Jesus lifted his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And so notice that Jesus is looking at Philip to, feed, to meet the needs of the people. And so what is happening to Philip right now um, happens to all of us at one time or another and, and will continue to happen to us is that all of a sudden an unexpected demand is placed upon us, much like it is with Philip here. A trial is being brought before Philip. An unexpected, for you, it might be an unexpected bill. Um, your car might break down. Uh, a death of a loved one. Your son comes home and tells you that his girlfriend is pregnant. Or your daughter comes home and says she's pregnant. How do you meet that need? It was unexpected. You weren't expecting that that day. And so an unexpected demand is being placed on Philip right now. And Philip, thousands are coming. We need to minister to them. They're going to get hungry. How are we going to feed them? But the comfort of this comes in the very next verse, in verse 6. But this he said to him to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Malachi 3.6 tells us, For I am the Lord, I do not change. God does not change. His nature doesn't change. His motives don't change. His principles do not change. And so his, his methods might change from time to time, but the purpose of those methods are always going to be the same when it comes to trials and tribulation. And that is, Jesus himself, God himself, has arranged it, has allowed it, and they are prearranged by the hand of the Lord for this reason, to prove us, to test us. But this he said to test him. And it is through that testing, it's through that proving that God develops us into the men and women of faith that he has called us to be. God doesn't allow these things to happen to be difficult with us. He allows these things to happen to develop us. And we need to understand that. In 1 Peter 1, 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. How many people have succeeded at that in your life, that every time a trial and tribulation comes your way, the very first thing you do is go, woohoo, hallelujah, praise God. Car just blew up. Nice. Thank you, Lord. You know, my wife and I um, were uh, dropping off our daughter in Arizona, um, not just because she was going to college, <laughs> and Grand Canyon University, and we had our uh, Honda Pilot and we dropped her off and put her in her dorm and everything else. And then we were driving to California to visit our family and friends. And then about 80 miles outside of Blythe, California, all of a sudden, the transmission blew. It was like 117 degrees, you know. And uh, so we're calling Geico and say, hey, can you get a, a tow? And, and there was a tow truck that was really close by and saw us and pulled over. And so we um, uh, got Geico and, and they were able to work with them and... And so they took us into uh, Blythe, 
California. And if you've ever been to Blythe, it really should be called Blight. But, uh, and so the guy who towed us, um, I'm just, uh, I look to my wife and I, I just go, I go, well, maybe this is a ministry opportunity, you know. And so I started praying. It was a good hour and 15 minute drive to be able to get to uh, Blythe. And so um, the whole time I'm just praying for an opening and opening. And then I saw an opening and so I took it and I just told him that I was a pastor and that we're Christians and um he started telling me a little bit about his life, and I started ministering to him and trying to be a light and a witness, and it just shut the conversation down. I'm going, oh, great. I blew that one, you know. And, um, and about maybe five minutes goes by. He's kind of silent, you know, and it makes for an awkward time because we've got another 45 minutes in this car. And um, all of a sudden, he just starts... You know, there's a guy that used to work here, and, and he's a believer, and he's been telling me I need to go to church, and, and he doesn't work here anymore because he's, he's trying to get in the ministry, and now he's an associate pastor at this church that's not far from my home, and blah, blah, all this kind of stuff, and it just kind of comes out. And I said, and here you have a pastor in your car. What do you think God is trying to tell you? And so for the next 45 minutes, it just opened up, and my wife and I are just ministering to him. And so when we pull in um, to get our car looked at, I, I just looked at my wife and said, That's, you know, that was ordained by God. He wanted that. Now, nothing good came out of our car blowing up. We had to leave it there. Um, my brother had to come and pick us up about 100 miles away. We had to fly back to Colorado, and uh, we had to go down to one car, my Mini Cooper, um, for six months before we were able to get another car. And it was. It was a trial. It was a pain. It was, you know what? But we just looked at it and said, it is what it is. But I have no idea, and I still pray for that guy, um, that tow truck driver. And I, on the other side of heaven, maybe he went to church. Maybe he gives his life to the Lord. Maybe, you know. And if that's the case, blow up all my cars. If that's what it's going to take, you know. And so the moment it happened, I just want to let you know, I was not thrilled. <laughs> You know, it was a good 10 minutes into this ordeal, maybe 15, that we finally said, okay, let's pray. <laughs> you know, uh, at 117 degrees, you would think that that would have come quicker to my mind, but it didn't. And then the tow truck driver showing up, and I'm just going, okay, Lord, just take it from here, you know. But everything, it's to greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, glory, revelation of Jesus Christ. Understand what is being said here. The genuineness of your faith is being tried here, and it's tried by fire. And just like the smelter, when it comes to gold, heats up the gold, the impurities raise to the surface. And then he scrapes it out. The smelter continues to do that until after he heats it from time and time again. There's no more impurities. Instead, he sees his reflection. That's what God does with us. That fire. And all of a sudden, your car blows up. And, and for 15 minutes, I have anxiety. <laughs> you know, I have fear. I have all sorts of things that were raised to the top. Until the Lord could scrape them off. And 15 minutes into it, I, I kind of go, maybe we should pray. <laughs> let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. And so we do, we pray, and the tow truck driver comes and everything else. Then another, you know, test comes our way. And another test comes our way. And that impurity, what you didn't think was there, is all of a sudden there. You know? 
And that's God showing it to you. He's not just the one that's bringing it to the surface. He's bringing it to the surface so you could see, oh, I didn't even realize I was there. Fear is there. Anxiety is there. You know? Um, and then he'll scrape it off and he'll give you another opportunity until he sees his reflection. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. When those testings come, he wants to be able to see himself inside that trial. And so he goes on in 1 Peter 4, he tells us, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And yet, isn't that where we always go first? Why is this happening? What am I doing wrong? What? This shouldn't be going on right now. This cannot be prearranged by God. This, And we think it's strange. As though some strange thing is happening to you. God, do you see what's going on here? Are, are you sure you're aware? This was not in my plans today. And so, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. But when, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. And so, Jesus puts this unexpected test into Philip's life. And I guarantee you, he's going through some anxiety. I really want to impress Jesus. <laughs> you know, he's given me this testing. He's given this to me. What is it that I'm going to do? But look at verse 6. It says, but this he said to test him. For he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. Jesus already has the answer to your situation. Jesus already has the answer to your trial and tribulation. He already has a plan in place. He already knows what he is going to do. And so we see this, and it says, and Philip answers him, Look how he responds. 200 denarii uh, worth of bread is not sufficient for them. So he looks at his own resources, probably looks in the treasury account there and finds out he has so much money. That's not enough for the bread that's needed here. And so he says it's not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. And so in verse 8 it says, And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. By what, but what are they among so many? So at first, when you read that, you almost can hear the excitement in, um, in Andrew's voice when he says, there are five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Oh, so close. Philip and Andrew, they look toward their own resources, and that's not a bad thing. Um, if God is asking you to do something and it's within your means and resources to do that, then we should do it. And this is exactly what they do here. They look at their own resources to see if they can meet the need. But guess what? They cannot meet the need. And so, then when the need is outside of our control, what is it that we're supposed to do? That unexpected demand comes right. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go immediately to Jesus. Why? Because he has a plan. He has a plan. Remember Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Um, no one's able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He, he demands an edict be thrown out there. We're going to kill all the wise men. Bunch of dummies. They don't know what my dream is. And I'm just mad at all of it, which included Daniel and, and his friends. And Daniel didn't go to Nebuchadnezzar to try and reason with him and show him how unreasonable he's being or anything like that. What does he do? He goes to prayer. And he grabs his friends, Mishael, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they go to the Lord and they pray. And that unexpected demand upon Daniel and his friends, they go to the Lord in prayer. And guess what? God gives them the interpretation of the dream. And that's the uh, right response that we're supposed to have. 
When that unexpected demand comes our way that you cannot meet, then guess what? Go to the one who can always meet the needs, and that's Jesus himself. And so have we formed that habit of instinctively turning to God for everything? And I would submit to you, no. None of us have. Some do it better than others. That means that they're further along in their walk than others. But this is where what we need to do. We need to be able to quickly uh, learn to go to the Father and go to Jesus. In John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But guess what? Without me, you can do nothing. And we need to remember that. And here's the thing. God wants to blow your mind. And so we need to go to him immediately for everything. God is my provider. He is my supplier of every need. He can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so we need to go to him directly. And so God, Jesus, is testing Philip right here. And yet Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He has a plan in place. And so we read here in verse uh, verse 9. He goes on. And he says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus says, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Again, it's a spring. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and we had given thanks. He distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish as much as they wanted. So then, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. In uh, Matthew's account, it says there were 5,000 besides women and children. And so if there's 5,000 men there, uh, and if you want to say uh, another 2,500 of women, maybe another 500 of kids or whatever, um, that's at least 8,000 people that are going to be fed here. That's 8,000 or more. Um, we have here this, this small uh, child or this lad. The word lad there is a Greek word that means anywhere from like 5 to 11 years of age. Okay, um, Very insignificant in the presence of 5,000 men. And what is it this little child has? Five barley loaves and two fish. The word barley loaf here is a word that speaks of an inferior sort of bread. Pliny and some of the Jewish writers describe barley as food only fit for animal consumption. For people to eat barley loaves would mean they are very, very poor. And then this word fishes is a Greek word that uh, means diminutive fish or very, very small fish. Erdersheim's Life of Jesus says... These are specially designated as small fishes that might be eaten without cooking. The small fishes were recommended for health, and the Lake of Galilee was particularly rich in these, the salting and pickling of which was a special industry among the fishermen. So you have the smallest fish in Galilee to be used for human consumption, and you have the most worthless bread that is fit for human consumption. And so you have this small lad... The small boy, this lad, barley loaves and fish all seem very insignificant with what is needed here in our story. And so we look at this and we do have someone who is willing to give what they have in order to meet the need. And that someone is that lad, that small boy. He was a child. And what did Jesus say about children? 
He said this, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. It is a child that believes God can do anything. It is a child that has faith that God is good and can be trusted. It is a child in this story that's willing to share his food in order to help and feed others. It is this child in the story that sees no obstacles. He's just willing to help. How precious this must have been in the Lord's eyes. I would submit to you that God would like us to be like this little child. That you don't look at the obstacles, but you look like this little boy to see how you can help even in the smallest and most insignificant ways. And the reason is, is because this boy offers what he has willingly to Jesus. And what he offers is insufficient. But when you take what is insufficient and you place it in the hands of the person who is all-sufficient, guess what happens? All needs are met. All needs are met. When you put what is insufficient in the hands of the person who is all-sufficient, all needs are met. And so you have the barley loaves. You have the fish who were at the very least, at the very bottom of what you could use for humans' consumption. And you have a little boy who's willing to give what he has to try and meet the need. And Jesus takes it, and he's able to meet the need with it. He's able to do that. I would submit to you that this, in this story, that we are the small lad... I would submit to you that we are also uh, the barley loaf. I would submit to you that we are the small fish. I would submit to you that we are Philip in this story. And what does Jesus do? Verse 11, he takes the loaves. When he has given thanks, he distributes them to the disciples and the disciples of those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus thanked God for even the most smallest provision through the willingness of a small child, and Jesus used it to meet the needs. God will always multiply what you give him to meet the needs. And bring God what you can, let him do the rest. I don't care how little your faith is. I don't care how insignificant you think you are. If you bring yourself and your talents to God's service, he will use it to meet the needs. He just asks for a willing vessel. All I look for, for people in the church, are people who are willing, available, and teachable. I'm not looking for the talented. I'm not looking for the person who is the most educated. I'm not looking for any of those. I'm looking for someone who's willing, available, and teachable, is who I'm looking for. And when I go through God's Word, it seems like that's what He's looking for as well. Those who are willing. And so I look here, and, 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 I, and I still love what God does here. Because verse 9 is kind of filled with defeat. Philip and Andrew do not say, Look, Lord, we found five barley loaves and two small fish. Here, go with it. We know that you can bless through that. But what are they amongst so many? They have that defeatist attitude right out the gate. They had no faith. They didn't believe that God could use that or, or minister through that. And so... I love this about God. God doesn't write them off. Instead, he gives them something to do. Hey, hey, can you at least make the people sit down? There's much grass in the place. Can, can you do that? Well, yeah, we could do that. Okay, do that. 
Jesus just didn't write them off. Oh, losers. You know, ask them to do one little thing. They just can't seem to get this whole faith thing done. Okay, what, what, what can you do? Well, we can do this. Okay, do that. You know, I'll still use you. Can you make the people sit down? Yeah. I have people that come to me and they'll say, I can't do anything. I'm not really gifted. I cannot teach Bible studies. I can't do youth. I can't do Sunday school. I can't tell people about Jesus. I get so nervous and I don't know the Bible that well. And I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so I say, okay, hold on. Can you show up to church on time? What? What? Yeah. Well, if you can show up on time, can you show up a little early? Well, yeah. Okay, can you get here early and then can you pray with us all? Because we always pray before service starts, about a half hour before. Can you come to that? Well, yeah, I, I, I can come to that. Okay, do that. Can you greet people as they walk through the doors? Well, yeah, I can do that. Here's the important part about that. Can you greet people with a smile? Yeah, I can, I can do that. Okay, do that. And God will meet you right where you're at. He will use that. He will blow your mind. All of a sudden, as you're being a greeter with a smile and everything else, you find God using you, and all of a sudden you seem to be more concerned week after week with these people coming in, and now you're wanting to get to really know them, and how can I pray with you? And all of a sudden, ministry begins to take off, and, and all you did was make yourself available. Were you willing to make yourself available? Are you, are you teachable? Are you willing to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say and, and how he will use you? Well, yeah, well, then just do that. And watch what God does, because he will blow your mind. He will. There's a lad here. He has five barley loaves and two small fish. I wish I could read it that way. But, what is that against so many? That dreaded word, but. It always amazes our thinking. It raises those objections. All of a sudden we start looking at the situation practically and why it isn't going to work. And uh, God used a shepherd boy to sling a small stone to kill a giant. It seems to me the Lord takes great pleasure in using a little to do a lot. Uh, about 15, 16 years ago, um, in uh, the first church that I was pastoring in Colorado, my wife and I came out and planted this church. And um, about 16 years ago, uh, I had a guy who gave me a call. His name is Andre, uh, Andre, Andre Martel. He's a worship leader from Westminster, California. And he was telling me God was stirring his heart to uh, start a fellowship in Aurora, which is about 30, 35 miles away from our church in Littleton. And I said, that, I think that's great. Let me pray for you. And, and we have a home fellowship out there, a community group out there. And, and I think they'd be really excited to know that there's somebody coming to their area to want to start a church. And, and so I can give you these guys' names, and, and, and they'd be willing to host you, and, and we'll do whatever we can do. And so we hit it off, and it was just wonderful. And, and so it came the time for him to come, and he was coming that weekend, and the home fellowship was going to host him, was excited about for him to lay out the vision what he had there for Aurora. And so Sunday morning came, and, and a couple of those people from that uh, home fellowship were at, at the service that morning, and I was excited to talk to them after service to find out how it went, you know. But there, there was something about them, even in service, I noticed they, were, they weren't listening. Their, their eyes were kind of glazed over and everything else. And so after service, I, I went up to them. I said, so how did the meeting go, you know? And this uh, gal and her husband just looked up to me, and they just said, He died. Oh, what? 
He goes, he died. When? Where? How? He, he came over to the house. He began to tell us the vision, and he had a heart attack, and he died. And I, not expecting that response at all. Uh, we didn't like him. Uh, it went great. You know, there's all other response. was not expecting that. And they're looking at me going, what does that mean? What is God doing there? I don't know. This is the first I've heard of it. I, I haven't had a chance to pray or think about what is going on. All I know is this. Keep coming here and we'll seek the Lord. And in time, maybe we'll, we'll figure this thing out. You know, what, what the Lord is doing. And they were stunned. I was stunned. No clue what that was all about. You know, in my mind, that makes absolutely no sense. Why am I talking to this guy if he's just going to come and die? You know, what, what, what is that all about? You know? Well, I, I'm giving them 30 people from our fellowship of 100. I mean, you know, come on. I thought I was doing a good thing, and well, I don't get this. So they, they kept coming, and then in the next couple months, uh, within like five or six months, the Lord was just putting Aurora on my heart. And same with my wife. We've got to do something Aurora. I can't do anything wrong. I'm, going, I'm calling some of the bigger fellowships, and I'm just saying, can you send anybody to Aurora? Because I, I, I got this stirring in my heart that something's supposed to happen in Aurora. And, uh, and nobody else could uh, do anything at that point. And so the, the Lord just put this on my heart, and I'm going, okay, Lord, we just went to two services, our fellowship, you know. I can't do a 9 o'clock, an 11 o'clock, and then drive all the way out there. That's like 40 minutes away and try and do a 1 o'clock. You know, that's just too much. I, I, can't do, I can't do a 7 o'clock. And then, you know, and a lot of times because of the weather, snow like that, that would be kind of tough to go, you know, all the way out there if it's snowing or if the conditions aren't right and things like that. I go, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And when you stop saying I can't, and like you feel like you've made your case before the Lord, and it's flawless, You really do hear the Lord say, well, could you do Saturday night? Well, I could. <laughs> but why? Why am I doing this? I'm in Littleton. That's like 30, 40 miles away. Okay. Talk to the home fellowship out there. I say, find a place that we could do Saturday night service. Two months later, starting in January, we start doing Saturday night service. And, um, you know, um, within about eight months or so, we had about 75 people coming. Um, by that time, God also raised up somebody that I could hand it off to. And so, I think 10 months later, I, uh, I handed off to him. And uh, that has gone on to be uh, the biggest church in Colorado. I can't, I can't, I can't. Can you do that? Can you hand it off to this guy? Well, yeah, then do that. And look what God has done. You know, and so I look at that and I just kind of go, yeah, that whole I can't thing should be, Lord, I, I don't see it. I don't understand it. So I'm just waiting. You, you show me what part I'm supposed to play in this and, and I'll do that without necessarily knowing the next thing. You know, Darren reminded me of something that um, I've taught before and it just seems to make sense right now to just kind of interject it. But when. When you read in Psalm, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. When you go to Israel, you find it's a small little clay lamp that fits in the palm of your hand. And when you light it, 
in pitch darkness, it only lights enough for you to take one step. And until you take that step, you don't know where the next step is going to be. And it's the same thing with your walk with the Lord. It's kind of like, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, what about, it's like, can you at least let them sit down? Can you make them sit down in groups? Can, can you do that? Well, well, yeah. Do that, and then you're going to see what the next step is. And then you'll see what the next step is. And then you'll see what the next step is. And as you continue to walk down the ride, all of a sudden you're going to turn around and go, look at all these steps that I've taken. Look at what God has done. And he should blow your mind. And I, I look back 15 years ago. I can't, but I, well, at least I could do that. And now I see what that church is doing. I'm going, God, you're amazing. You're absolutely amazing. And it's things like that time and time again. These small steps of faith is what you do. And until you take it, you're not going to know what the next one is. You're just not. And so in verse 12, it says, so when they were filled, so you made them sit down in groups of 50. You began to disperse the food out. And then when they were filled, he said to his disciples, you now go and gather the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. And so therefore they gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And just so you know, the fragments they collected was just the bread, not the fish. Because that would just be yuck, okay? Little small fragments of fish that people have been gnawing on, you know? So um, it's just the, the bread that he used there. And so you have 12 disciples that lack faith that get to carry back 12 baskets of bread to show what God can do. You all lack the faith that God can meet the need through such a small, insignificant thing. But guess what? Look what he did. And you all have this basket you can stare in and go, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? It happened because Jesus is the all-sufficient one. That's how it happened. Um, and so the numbers have significant in God's word. The number 12 has to do with rule, rule of a nation. With Israel, we see 12 sons of Jacob, which was the birth of the nation of Israel and their 12 tribes. And so we know that 12 speaks of Israel. It speaks of the Jews. Um, and so we see that. Uh, and, and so going on here, I want you to also be able to see this, that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew chapter 15 are completely separate events. Okay. Um, here in Matthew, uh, uh, in, I'm sorry, in uh, John 6, the feeding of 5,000 is in Galilee, and we told it's near Bethsaida, according to Matthew's gospel. And so that's in, um, that's in a predominantly Jewish area. Um, there's five loaves and two fish. The multitude was only with him for a day there. It's in the spring of the year, green grass. Twelve baskets of bread are left over, and afterwards they try and make him king. But in the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15, it's in the area of the Decapolis region. Okay, that Deca means ten. There's ten cities on the eastern side of the Jordan and of Galilee that are predominantly Gentile. Okay, different place. There are seven loaves, a few fish. He multiplied, and the multitude was with him there three days, and they were told to sit on the ground, not on the grass, so it was summertime, and there were seven baskets of bread left over. There are some people that, that try and say, oh, it's just one and the same thing, they just didn't get it right, and, you know, but it's really talking about the same event. Those people are idiots. So, because Jesus himself said, do, not, do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? So if Jesus distinguishes these two events as being separate events, I would submit to you, they're separate events. Now, 
One took up 12 baskets, the other one took up 7 baskets. It's interesting here that the word baskets are different. The baskets that's talked about here in John chapter 6, this is a Greek word, kofinos, and it means a small basket. It, it speaks particularly to the Jews in which they used to travel to carry food. This is a small basket. In Matthew 15, with the feeding of the 4,000, there in Deca- the Decapolis area, which is more um, uh, ministering to the uh, uh, Gentiles, this is a word, uh, sparisi, which means a hamper or lunch receptacle. It's a much larger basket used by Gentile merchants for the carrying of their wares. This is the same word used when the Apostle Paul was lowered in a basket, um, lowered over the wall, the Damascus wall, in Acts 9.25, when the Jews were plotting to kill him for preaching Christ. He was put in that basket, so it's a much larger basket. And so, looking at the thought here of, of these baskets, well, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So, Jesus, uh, we're also told, is able to do exceedingly abundantly all before we ask or think. So, what is the significance of why one feeding they collected seven baskets and the other feeding they collected 12 baskets? Well, I believe that numbers are significant. The number seven in Scripture always speaks of not perfection, but completion. So, there's seven days of the week. There's seven notes of music, there's seven colors of the rainbow, etc. You can do a study on your own, but seven means completion. It doesn't mean perfection, it means completion. And so, you remember that Jesus, when he fed the 4,000, as I mentioned before, is in Decapolis. That's a Gentile region. Um, And so, that word for basket refers to Gentile culture. We find in Joshua 3.10, speaking of Gentiles, it says, And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Seven. Paul, it says in Acts 13, stands up motioning with his hand, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time, about 40 years, he put up the ways of the wilderness. And when he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, seven Gentiles nations, speaking of the totality of the Gentiles there, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And so the seven nations speak of Gentile nations. And if number seven is completion, then those seven baskets, I would submit to you, in a predominantly Gentile area of Decapolis, speaks of the Gentile nations. That abundant life through Jesus is also being brought to the Gentiles. Remember, it always goes to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And so the Jews, the abundant life of Jesus Christ has been offered to them. But guess what? It's also going to be offered to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread in, in, uh, in these events here. It speaks of him. He's abundant. He will meet the need. He can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so if we are insignificant, if we don't feel like we can do all these things of a great evangelist and things you do, just put your hands, put yourself in the hands of the one who is all sufficient. And he will use you to be able to meet the needs of the people. And and what the people need is they need Jesus. They need Jesus. 
And so the very fact of Jesus' announcement that he's the bread of life goes all the way back to his birth. He's actually born in Bethlehem. That means house of bread. And before he dies, he's meeting with his disciples at the Last Supper. He says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's the bread of life. And so from the very beginning to the end of his life here on earth, Jesus powerfully demonstrates the great fact that he is the bread of life. And I believe Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was not just the bread of life for the Jews, but also for the rest of humanity, the Gentiles. Jesus is for, who, for everyone who will accept him. And I hope that you have accepted him here today. And if not, it's not too late. Call upon him and he will answer you and he will come to you and he will change your life, much like Chris had said in that moment in that hotel room. And he is really the living bread. Jesus wants to use everyone who has accepted him to meet the needs of others. Will you trust him? Will you place yourself willingly? Are you going to be willing, available, and teachable into the hands of the one who is all-sufficient so he can use you to meet the needs of others? And I hope the answer is yes, that you will do that or that you are doing that. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for your word and I do want to thank you so much that there's a place for all of us to be used for your kingdom. And all it takes is that first step of faith. For one, to receive you. If there's anyone here this morning that has not received you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that they would just bow their knee to you right now. That they would just pray this prayer after me. Lord, I believe. I'm just asking right now that you would come into my life and that you would change me. Forgive me of my sin. I ask that you would just take that sin upon the cross, nail it there. I thank you so much for the work that you've done for me on the cross, and I believe. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Lord, if anybody prayed that prayer through the sincerity of their heart, that they would know that you've met them right where they're at and they're forgiven, and that you want to use them. Father, I pray for anybody else here this morning that isn't involved in this church. They just come, they go, they come, they go. Lord, that you'd stir their hearts to be involved, that they would go and they would speak to Pastor Tom and say, where's the need? Where's the need? I can at least do this. I could show up for that. I can do this. I could pray. I can, Lord, that everybody that comes here and calls uh, Calvary Chapel Springfield their home, that you'd stir their heart and that you would ask them the question, where are they serving? How are they meeting the need? And that by a step of faith, that they would just step out and know that, yeah, it's not because they're smart and bright and know everything, but they're willing and they're available and teach them through it. And I ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.